Welcome to the Lifetime at Work podcast, episode 30. My name is Greg Martin, and I work at the prestigious investment bank Origin Merchant Partners, a team of experts in all things M&A, helping to sell companies, working on corporate strategy, and growing businesses through acquisition. My days are spent helping CEOs and business owners make good decisions, while I help manage a team of young professionals who work hard every day to support us. On the side, I report this podcast because the story of our jobs, how they affect us, and why we do them is important. Here we explore different jobs and different topics about the world of work with the goal of giving you more meaning, purpose, and love for your job. Each week, I interview a different guest, and this week, we're talking about what it feels like to be an outsider in a working world of white men. Patricia is an extremely successful law professional, finishing top of her class at law school, working as a corporate lawyer. She even started her firm at one point. And now, today, she continues to be a top advisor for some really cool Silicon Valley companies. But the thing with Patricia and the point of this episode is that one day she decided to out herself. You see, Patricia is Latina. And her parents are from uh, Ecuador and El Salvador, but her skin is very light. And so what she effectively did and realized at a certain point in her career was that she was just pretending to be white. She also hid that uh, she had a family. So the fact that she had kids and that she was breastfeeding and that she had young children was just something she wasn't comfortable in telling the world or telling her coworkers because she was afraid that she would get left behind and and lose the pace that she was in, in her career. But now things have sort of changed and Patricia's trying to use this as a way to tell other people that, hey, there's there's lots of this going on. There's a lot of outsiders out there in the world. So for me, this was like an eye-opening experience because I had never really thought about it. I mean, I'm biracial. I, my mom is an immigrant from Guyana and she's very dark, very dark skinned. And the fact of the matter is that I just really pretend to be a white guy. I, I, I feel and act and really in the world of work, especially really don't touch on that or ever talk about it, or I've never really even thought about it. I mean, you just kind of get along as being that white person. So it's set off this flurry of questions now that I have about the world of, and working and if who we should be and how we should treat people with different backgrounds and kind of how white people, especially men, just kind of dominate the boardrooms. And we don't even necessarily even know it. I mean, you see it when you look at it, but you don't even sort of realize what it means. And so that's kind of why Patricia's book is so amazing. She has a sort of this great story that resonates with me a ton. And I never even really thought that it would or or could really appreciate it. And so I think that if you are basically a non-white person, a non-white guy, you're you're probably going to get a lot out of this because you're really going to resonate with a lot of the things Patricia is saying. And if you are an old white guy, I think you'll also enjoy this because you're going to learn a lot, a lot of things that I didn't even know. And I've got the biracial background. Here's my interview with Patricia Tim. Hey, Tricia, welcome to the Lifetime at Work podcast. Hi, Greg. Nice to meet you. Thank you. I figured we could start maybe by doing a bit of a a kind of experiment or do it this way. But I I thought maybe if you could pretend for a second that you're that you're not a woman and you have no cultural background whatsoever. And maybe just describe to me your your career and and call it like two minutes, your accomplishments. That would be uh, that'd be great. You know, I love that you asked it that way because it actually made me 
think of it differently. I usually do lead with um, those things. So thank you for actually asking the question in that way. So um, I've had a very successful career as a corporate lawyer in Silicon Valley. I've worked with high-tech companies, big and small, for over 25 years um, as both uh, outside counsel at a law firm as well as in-house counsel. I've been the first lawyer and executive at three different startups, helping them scale um, to big, large corporations ready to go public. I've been a general counsel of a large, publicly traded global software company with 35 subsidiaries worldwide. I've taken companies public. I've sold them for billions. Um, I'm currently the director of a software company called Salsify. It's a commerce experience platform company that helps retailers, distributors, and manufacturers collaborate um, on the digital shelf. It's their system of record of getting products out um, digitally. And I'm on the board of three nonprofits right now. I'm doing venture investing. I'm investing in women entrepreneurs. Uh, who, by the way, received the least VC funding of of anyone, particularly women of color. And I just wrote my first book, Embrace the Power of You. So I've just been doing a lot of things and and right now really enjoying uh, giving back and having some impact. And and I guess the other thing you have, uh, is it two daughters? Yes, I have two daughters, uh, one in college and a sophomore in college and a junior in high school. And I'm married and live in California. And a dog, Ellie, that I just had to put away because she was barking. <laughs> great. Okay. Gotcha. Okay. So we've set up the landscape, uh, which which yes. is great. Um, and I then wanted to pivot to so kind of the most recent thing. And I think this is pretty, pretty recent because uh, I was reading the book. It seemed very current. Um, but yeah. you wrote a book. And, and what, so maybe your next question is, what was the impetus for, for doing that? Why did you decide to, to write a book? Where was the inspiration from? It's an interesting story. So I had in the back of my mind that I had a unique story to tell. And so there was some, you know, seeds in the back of my mind that maybe one day I would write a book. But what happened was in the middle of COVID, a woman that I had met who was in um, in the PR world, she's a CEO of Hotwire. She reached out and then literally was an email that said, do you want to write a book? And she was, I know it's like this call from the universe. Like, here it is. Do you want to write a book? (laughs) And she, what she was noticing was that there, you know, she interviewed CEOs all the time, men and women, and that most of her male clients were writing or had written books and none of her female clients were. And so she was curious as to why that was happening. And most of the time, the reason was the women just said they didn't have time uh, or didn't know how to or just, you know, didn't have, just didn't have the time to do it. So she decided that she wanted to change that and wanted to see more female business authored books out in the world. So she put together the group of 10. And the idea was to bring a group of 10 uh, executive women leaders together to write, first time authors to write a book and to just support and help each other. None of us uh, had ever written a book. None of us knew even where to start. None of us knew, you know, anything. So in the middle of COVID, we just got together on Zoom every two weeks. We would bring in guest speakers, um, authors, publishers, 
PR folks, uh, and just to learn about the publishing industry, you know, uh, developmental editors, uh, writers, uh, workshop um, organizers. So we all took different paths, uh, but we started together on that uh, journey path of, of being an author. So that's how it started. Yeah, it's interesting. Maybe I'll just before we sort of dive into the the topic I, as a podcast host, and I by no means am, <laughs> am I a very large one, but I get a ton of inbound requests, and it's very often from book, you know, book promoters effectively trying to to you know, and they have a lot to talk about, which is which is great. The challenge with yeah. a lot of the business books out there is they're very much uh, they, they don't hit home very well. They're really about typically here's how you be more efficient at this or right. here's some observation on how to optimize that. Like it's very much a, uh, I don't know, a how-to manual or a step-by-step on how to, how to, I don't know, to improve something in the working world. Right. Yours was, was, was very different. I, I, and I, I can't mm-hmm. do, when I read those books, I, at the end of it, feel like I know nothing about that person. Mm-hmm. They just happen to talk about a topic for um, 200, 300 pages. You are <laughs> very opposite. Yeah. I, I feel like in an awkward position now where I feel like I know you really well because I read the book yeah. and you don't know me, yeah. but uh, you really kind of, I think, told a lot about your, your, your story. And mm-hmm. so I thought maybe, I don't know if you got a quick way to sort of to tell it, but yeah. all the accomplishments that you talked about earlier, you sort of did that by sort of feeling maybe not yourself the whole time. Um, and so maybe mm-hmm. dive into that. Yeah, no, that's a very good observation. And and it is, it's a very raw, vulnerable book. Uh, and uh, really the book is for anyone who's ever felt like an other in the room. Uh, and it's for anyone who wants to fit in, belong in the workplace, but they're hiding a piece of their identity uh, may not and may not realize that really only by revealing their authentic self, being who they are, will they achieve what they most want and the success they're looking for. And the core message of the book is that true belonging begins with self-acceptance. And it chronicles my own personal journey towards self-acceptance. Um, I'm a first-generation Latina working in corporate America, where I saw no one that looked like me. Uh, so it's, a, as you said, a very personal story about me. You probably actually know more the, about me by reading the book than, <laughs> than many of my family and friends do in, in this male moment, um, because I was very personal. And I, and I did that because I don't, my story is not the only story. And as I've gone out and talked to other uh, particularly Latina executives, but anyone who's ever felt like another, they'll say, my story is your story. And I've never really either thought about it. I, I, I I'm, you know, it, it brings up emotions and feelings that they've um, grappled with in the past and thought they were the only ones thinking it. And so my hope is to provide tools and strategies for those folks uh, to realize that really they can show up in the workplace as their authentic self. And the workplace needs them. Um, I really do believe that diverse perspective and thought um, will create better companies, uh, better products, and serve more people. And if you're not showing up authentically, you're not bringing that perspective into the room. And 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 I believe we need it. One of the things I learned was that you hid yourself. You, you effectively joined the corporate world where you didn't really feel like you necessarily belonged, but you worked hard to try to belong mm-hmm. as best you could, pretending that you were 
white or as white as, as you mm-hmm. possibly could. And, and probably in some respects, you know, it couldn't hide it that you're a woman, but right. didn't really exhibit anything particular about yourself and, 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 and being a woman because that was so sort of unique. Was there a moment where you felt that I know you mentioned sort of a LinkedIn post where you sort of went public with it. Mm-hmm. Was there another moment though, that you realized that you were hiding it or did you know that you were hiding that to yourself that you weren't, you know, that you, that you weren't out there that you yeah. were thinking that way? You know, when I was little, I knew I was downplaying or hiding my ethnicity because it was the way my parents, uh, the advice they gave me to succeed in the U.S. You know, they are immigrants with very strong accents. My mother's from El Salvador. My father's from Ecuador. At the time when I was growing up, El Salvador was in the midst of a civil war. Um, And so there was a lot of discrimination that they had um, gone through. And so their perspective for me was, you know, don't, don't highlight this about yourself. You're only going to get discriminated against. It's going to be harmful for you. Uh, And so I knew consciously then to downplay it. But at some point between, you know, growing up and, and they had moved us out of LA into the suburbs, the predominantly white community, um, Catholic school. And then somewhere along the line, I assimilated. Uh, and I, you know, stopped speaking Spanish at home. I didn't talk really about my family. And at some point, it just was sort of who I was. Uh, and I went through my career like that. Not, I don't, I don't think I was sudden, I was consciously aware that I was doing it every day at work. But it would show it like I would get these feelings of not belonging anytime there were derogatory statements made in the workplace or um, or I would walk into a room and, you know, everybody uh, like let's say I would walk, I would go to board. For example, I went to a board meeting at dinner once and all of the guests were white, particularly white men, and all of the servers and busters and wait staff were Latino. Right. And in that, in those moments, I have this conflict of like, where do I belong in this context? So I definitely had these inner conflict and moments throughout my career, but I didn't think I didn't wake up and say, okay, today I'm I'm doing this. I just learned the tools and the habits. But then when it really dawned on me that this was something I was doing every day was uh, in my last job at Looker, I decided to start a diversity, equity, inclusion program there. And this was just as those programs were starting um, to get headway in, 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 in corporations. But I started it to help working mothers because being a working mother also was very difficult for me. I really downplayed that as well. I didn't want to be seen as somebody who couldn't take on the next leadership position or stretch project because I had kids at home. So um, I I realized that working mothers needed a different environment. And that I couldn't really hide. I mean, I was a working mother. Okay. So people knew that. So I was able to, um, I, just, I knew that consciously more. So I started the program really to to help working mothers in the workplace. And in that growing that program, we started the Latinx 
uh, employee resource group and I got to, you know, spend more time with Latino employees. And I just started realizing, you know, that we had a similar lived experience and that I now in this role of leadership uh, could really be a valuable resource and role model uh, to the next generation. And so I just, then I started my own journey of really reclaiming that part of me and that identity that I had really downplayed for most of my career. Right. And, and, and in the book, you mentioned making sort of your first LinkedIn post, kind of almost coming out as being, as being, you know, as having this background, which you, you hid or just definitely didn't post about or talk about very much going Mm -hmm. out of that. And I was had this thought of, and I'm assuming you had this thought, but did you think, Hey, if I post this, is anyone going to care or, or just, you know, not even react or say, I don't, you know, just, think of you as, Hey, why did you bother posting this? And, and, and just react negatively, I'm assuming, <laughs> yeah. right. That's all I could think about. Yeah. Oh yeah. You know, actually I had a tremendous amount of fear. It wasn't, it was, I didn't even like, I think it would have been a win almost if nobody cared right. <laughs> because <laughs> I really felt, I mean, there, there were so many messages and there continue to be about, um, you know, from the outside world, really culture, society, you know, remarks, I mean, especially now, I mean, there's so much division right now you see in, in, in our country that being Latina was somehow lesser than. And so, you know, 25, 30 years of that message gets internalized. And so you believe that Others might look at you differently and even as lesser than um, by revealing this part of yourself. And I think, you know, this thing you said coming out, and I think members of the LGBTQ community relate to that feeling as well, that that coming out of thinking, well, we're, you know, we're not part of the majority and will we be thought of as differently or lesser than or um, stigmatized? And so I definitely was very nervous about it. And I had made it into the club. I, you know, my network of um, CEOs, board members, venture investors was large. And to me, I had to be okay, potentially losing part of that network by going down this path. And I still, frankly, worry about that sometimes. But um, you know, but I think that I, I am serving as a role model and inspiration to, to others that it's, that it's worth it. So I've had this kind of week with your book and what's interesting about me is that I the kind of the very beginning of the book, you sort of talk about how you hid that you were, that you, you know, you weren't Latina and so, uh-huh. I mean, my, my background, my mom is, is Guyanese. She's very dark. Like she's, a, a, yeah. a you can't hide what she looks like. Right. And my dad is very white. And I think, and I, I've sort of come out as someone with a, a, a tan, really a kind of a permanent tan mm-hmm. that, that people look at a little bit differently. And so that being said, I can very easily hide and be yeah. white in a, in, in, and, and I have done that. I, I have never mm-hmm. really come out and tried to be any different than that. And so I've spent the last week as I've been sort of going through your book, trying to figure out, you know, was I holding back? Was, was this bothering me? Was this, 
did I feel like I was holding something back or being different or, mm-hmm. or whatever? And and I can't find that part of it. Like I can't find, mm-hmm. I, I resonated with a ton for your book, but I, I think I just, I feel so much like that's who I am and that I can't really otherwise disassociate. The challenge with me is that I feel like I, I just don't fit into any group like that you have right. because of the biracialness of it, where I have right. or that too. It's not like I have a natural group. And, and I wanted right. to ask you, I don't know if it's like that. Like when I go to my, um, my, my, my mom's side, my Guyanese side of the family, I, I do not feel like I fit in there. That is no mm-hmm. place where I, you know, know what to say or know how to talk or eat mm-hmm. or whatever. I, I enjoy it, but I don't really identify with that being, being me. Um, and mm-hmm. I think, you know, I can get into the backstory, but a lot of it was, I think, you know, my mom's influence and my mom really wanting me to be white and mm-hmm. thinking the very same thing that, that your mom did was that, or that just being like, Hey, you're, you're going to have more advantages. And that was a hundred percent the history of, of me as well. And so I see all that as I'm reading the, uh, reading the book and, and identifying with it and never really having seen it put that way. So anyways, I just, I, it's not really a question. It's more of a thanks for, yeah. for putting that out there and taking that leap on, on LinkedIn and, and the book and all that. Cause I think it's, it's certainly been one where I, you know, I've, I've, I've gone through this whole book and it's hard. You just, kind of thinking about myself the whole time as I try mm-hmm. to, to draw parallels and relate. And, and there's a ton to, to relate to, but um, yeah, it's, and it's interesting just how it, how it factors in. And I, I liked how you said, maybe the last thing I had is others. It's, it's sort of like, Hey, we're all a little bit different here. It's going to apply mm-hmm. to people no matter what, in different ways, but mm-hmm. at the very least you can kind of identify with, with the feeling. Yeah. And, and it's, it is, it's a journey. I, I call it a journey and, and I don't think there's a right or a wrong answer. And I think that, I think what you said um, earlier was, I don't feel like I belong in either space sometimes. And, and I call that the third space yeah. because I, I feel like that as well. Um, you know, I feel like I belong sort of in both spaces, but not fully in both spaces. And that feels hard. You know, I, there are moments and I've been, you know, growing up and raising my kids now in a very predominantly white community. And my children, well, I would say probably feel more like you because they've, you know, I haven't brought in a lot of my culture into the home. Um, we don't speak Spanish here. Uh, and right now I'm trying to reclaim that and, and, but they're already, you know, in their late teens. So will be interesting to see where, where they end up on this question as well as they progress through life. Uh, but, you know, one thing you notice for myself is that when I do go into spaces that are um, Latino or Latinas, there is this sense of home that feels comfortable for me and that I enjoy. But I, in that space, feel like, am I brown enough? Because right. I haven't been in these spaces for 30 years. That's not where I were. You know, I wasn't surrounded by this community. Uh, and I feel almost like an imposter in that space. Like I let them down and I wasn't there. So it's, it's a really difficult um, journey. And I think what I have, what I can say, though, is, you know, again, I have fear not only when I, you know, outed myself in the LinkedIn post about being rejected from my um, corporate network, I also felt fear that I would be, you know, there would be disappointment from 
my Latino community for, you know, right. now you're speaking up after 30 years, where were you this whole time? And, you know, so, but they've embraced me and, you know, really, um, I, I, I've been feel very fortunate to, um, now be, um, part of uh, a number of different Latino organizations and I'm really helping that community. So, um, but you know, it's little by little and I don't think there's a right answer. You mentioned that before about, I think it was a lunch potentially where you had the, you know, servers all being from Latin origin. And it's kind of an interesting, you know, someone growing up in that, a little girl, imagine sort of growing up and seeing, Hey, where do I fit in? Do I fit in as the mm-hmm. server? And that, is that what, is that my goal? Should I strive for that? Or no, do I want to be the one speaking in front of that whole group and, 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 and doing it? That's hard, right? I mean, that's a hard, you kind of yeah. need those role models, uh, I think. So I, I, I meant to oh, yeah. bring that up when you <laughs> mentioned that before, but I think that's, that's sort of where you're headed now. Um, I, I, I wanted to ask you about uh, just, Code switching. What what is that? Yes, yeah. So um, code switching is a phenomenon of adjusting one's style of speech, appearance, behavior, or expression to conform to a different cultural norm. Um, so it's changing something about yourself in order to make others around you feel comfortable. So there's an example I share in the book that that is famous um, when uh, President Barack Obama was reading the men's uh, basketball team who had won uh, the championship. And as he's going down the line, he's shaking hands. And with you, you see a, a distinct difference when he shook the hand of a white coach with a firm handshake, very professional. And then he goes and shakes Kevin Durant's player uh, hand. And it was a you know one hand swing shoulder bump. Um, and so that's like an example of how people might change who they are, or how they interact with somebody based on a cultural norm. Um, but for example, for me, I would straighten my hair because that felt more um, felt more professional. The way you you know dress, or the way even how your personality might show up. You know, one of the things that you know, I'm loud, I'm Latina, I'm loud, I'm, you know, passionate <laughs> about things. And, you know, many times in my career, I've been told I'm, I'm, I've got a big personality, I need to kind of dampen it. And, and so I'm very cognizant of that. But that so and that's a very I learned later that that's a common criticism um, for Latinas that we're, we're told we're too big. So, you know, it's, it's that energy being placed every day of saying, how, how do I need to show up in this environment um, and switching who you are in order to adjust to whatever the, the dominant culture is? So how does that apply to the working world? Or put another way, how, you know, what's the impact on, on that sort of code switching and what do you have to, yeah. to do or feel like you have to do to be accepted in the working world? It's exhausting. Um, it really is a daily chore. Uh, and for some, it's more than others. You know, I think for Black women, it's particularly hard. Um, there's lots of, um, you know, attention on hairstyle and um, and how they may dress or speak. And so, you know, it's just this constant changing and putting energy into that rather than your work, um, because you're checking yourself. Am I, you know, did, did I wear the right thing? Am I 
sounding the way I'm supposed to sound? Am I dressing appropriately? Am I, you know, rather than just showing up and doing the hard work and not worrying about it. And it's over time, you know, in the, in the micro moment, it's fine. You do it. It's, you become accustomed to it, but over time. And, and for me, it was decades. It, it just becomes really emotionally exhausting and it takes a toll. And you'll see if you talk to women of color as a group, you'll hear of, you know, all of us reaching a point of anxiety, depression, you know, burnout. I mean, because it just, it's an additional um, toll and tax that, that we have to manage in, um, in the workplace. So what advice do you give to someone who's young? Like say first day on the job or call it first year in the job on something new. You're a new lawyer. You're going to work in the corporate world. You you do. You, you're amongst a lot of white people. Hopefully now there's versus when you started a little bit more mm-hmm. diversity. But what advice do you have or how do you sort of approach it? You want to be comfortable, mm-hmm. but you know maybe you do feel reluctant to stand out too much as being you know too yeah. different. Yeah. And, you know, it's, you have to examine your environment. Not all environments are going to be welcoming of your authentic self, a hundred percent. And in my career, uh, most of them were not. So definitely it's one of those questions on whether one, whether your environment um, is welcoming and you'll know that in terms of uh, how much the corporation is investing in uh, inclusion, whether you see employee resource groups, diversity and leadership, cultural awareness programs, and other things that make it a safe psychological safety around bringing your authentic self. So one, if that environment isn't there for you, you have a choice to make, right? If, if you do decide to show up as your authentic self, um, you, the second thing I would say is you need to have the resources and tools to endure it. Um, because you're going to endure resistance um, around it. And and I think some of the tools that I mentioned in my book are um, finding your people. Um, and what I mean by that is finding, um, and I would say three things. One is um, your personal champion or and some other folks call it as your personal board of directors, which is, you know, a group of people or a person that will remind you of your accomplishments, achievements, successes. Um, so that when you hit those moments of self-doubt, when you hit that brick wall, when you hit gaslighting, all of these things that are going to happen to you, um, you get reminded that it's not you, um, that it's that you have achieved, you are successful, you are qualified, and you belong. Um, because not having those people remind you will lead you to think that there's something wrong with you. Um, the second thing is mentorship and sponsorship. Um, I tell all young people today that the best thing that they can do is invest in um, networking and finding and building sponsors and mentors in their career. Um, And that takes some time. uh, And it's, you know, it's not one of those things that where you just go up to someone and say, hey, be my mentor. It's it's building and fostering relationships over time. Um, And those people will be people that when you are not in the room will be advocating for you. Um, And it is worth and you need those people in order to uh, navigate corporate uh, culture and uh, achieve positions of of leadership. And the last thing I would say is community. 
Um, finding a community of people that share your same identity or your same life experience um, is going to be crucial when you feel alone. Um, being around people that share the same things, that celebrate the same things, um, will just give you the support that you need when um, when you may feel alone or, or like you're an other and, and don't belong. It's all, I think, great. Do you think you can use diversity to your advantage? And and you've mentioned the, the part of, hey, it's helpful with making decisions to have different perspectives. But I'm thinking of more in, in other ways, you know, can, more standing out in, in can, can, do you think you can use diversity or, or how best could you use diversity to, to you know, to actually benefit you or, or to your advantage or to, to stand out? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the, the good news is that there is more um, uh, attention right now with diversity, equity, inclusion programs. Uh, I think, you know, when I first started looking into this area, I would say maybe five or seven years ago, um, the first thing that we were all told to do is we have to bring in the data to make the business case of why diversity matters. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's been five or 10 years of literally trying to explain and show the data that when you bring diverse perspective and thoughts into the room, companies do better, their profits are better, their margins are better. Um, it, you know, uh, it just around, oh, the entire um, company does better when you have um, diversity and leadership. So now we, I think the business case is largely there. Um, so now, you know, what do we do in terms of inclusion? How do we, once we bring the diverse folks in, how do we keep them and retain them? And, um, and so I think right now the biggest um, hurdle is creating cultures of inclusivity. Um, but if those two things are there, I think where diversity is an advantage is um, there's huge blind spots when you don't have diversity in the room. And so, for example, um, let's take the Latino community. The Latino community is the fastest growing demographic in the United States. Um, they contribute $2.8 trillion to the GDP. And if you break that out in terms of a country, it's the fifth largest GDP in the world. Um, they are a huge driving force behind the U.S. economy. And they are completely forgotten right now. Um, the, in terms of leadership, we are the least represented in the boardroom, in the C-suite, in investor funding. Um, so we are pretty much invisible right now, and the voice is, in, is, is not at the table. And what the result of that is that businesses are losing out on a huge market opportunity. Um, businesses can literally increase their revenue you know, bring in and expand their market opportunity if they invested in the Latino community because there is so much money there. Um, so I think that's where diversity is an advantage. And we're starting to see some companies um, acknowledge and, and see this. Um, I just saw a press release a few weeks ago where Square um, has just now invested in their Spanish-speaking products. Um, and I think they translated I think 20 or 30 I think 30 of their products in the Spanish, they're now um, generating um, uh, multicultural marketing programs and reaching out to the Latino community um, because the Latino, the small business community um, is being driven by Latino 
a small business owner. So they're starting to see that there's real revenue and opportunity there. So um, that's where diversity is a huge advantage if people really just kind of looked at it. The other example I have for you that I was just thinking about, I do a lot of recruiting and interviewing of people. And it's actually very challenging, especially when you've got a a coveted job or just just honestly Mm -hmm. in general, you get a lot of applications. And I'm typically looking for someone that stands out. And if you... The challenge that I typically have with people, though, and, and this goes to, I think it was my second question for you, which was just around, you know, me remembering you because of this story and who you were, and it was something unique. Mm-hmm. You really do have an opportunity, I think, to stand out by being by being unique in, in, in some way where, hey, yeah. there, there's probably not a lot of El Salvador, people from El Salvador, you know, <laughs> applying for a job. And it just, by virtue of that, it kind of makes you remember. And if you can really impress me in that situation, just like anyone else, you know, there's a good chance that you're going to remember. And it can actually be a, a, a cool way to stand out. And I think, you know, if I just think of my whatever podcast guests and, and going back, I think I will remember you in a lot more unique situations because I know more about, about you in the background right. rather than someone who was, was, was sort of not really open and wasn't really willing to connect and didn't really have anything unique to bring to the table. And and that's how I, and to your point, it's like, well, we've got a lot of old white people. We don't need another one of those. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I think you raise a great point and around telling our stories. Um, And one of the things I want to encourage um, in the workplace is storytelling, because I think that we all have such great unique stories to tell and we don't often tell them. And I think that that really also will, um, uh, bridge, you know, bridge, create more bridges between people. And once you know, once you learn of someone's story that you've worked with across the table for two, three, five years and realize where they've come from, you're going to have and create more empathy for maybe some of the challenges that you never saw. And like you said, really realize what, you know, what they bring to the table. So um, that's part of the reason I'm telling my story right now is, is, yeah. is for that reason. What what advice do you have for managers, people who, who may be in charge of and trying to create a, a culture and also a welcoming environment for people of potentially, you know, different cultures, especially vis-a-vis you know, I feel like a, someone who is, again, different culture, let's just identify someone new who's Chinese, say, in a group that otherwise isn't. You also don't want to pigeonhole that person and, and mm-hmm. really just feel like, hey, I'm going to talk to you always about the the few Chinese things that I know. And, and if, yeah. you know, and, and, and this or keep referencing some trip you once made like it's you, you also want to be able to treat them as a part of the team. And, and so there's that balance of it. I, I guess my question is more as as a sort of a manager trying to connect with your employee that may have a different background, but also that employee being a bit hesitant to want to offer up or, or, or be too different. Do you have any advice or any suggestions on how best to sort of cope and operate with that? Uh, Yes. You know, I think one and what I think companies are doing now is really being more proactive of celebrating lots of different cultural, religious, ethnic celebrations and not just one. Um, And that way, whether or not that person wants to openly talk about, you know, that celebration or that identity that might be celebrated, um, there, that creates a connection that may have not been there before. So, you know, when I was going up through the ranks, we never celebrated National Hispanic Heritage Month. I mean, that was right. never a thing. Um, and it is ni- not nice now to see the celebrations and have 
it sort of gives you the opportunity to talk a little bit about yourself and, you know, where you came from. So I think companies and managers that are celebrating um, different uh, identities, I think is, is good. Um, I think when there are discussions happening around the table, instead of requiring or, or, or thinking everyone's going to go bring in their um, opposite and different opinion, uh, oftentimes, you know, usually it's the, you know, the loud person that gets all the intention yeah. and the quiet person doesn't really get to, you know, say their voice. And so one strategy would be to say, okay, we've, we've heard lots of great ideas from a lot of people. I now want to challenge the group to, to give me the opposite. What's an opposite idea to what we've just heard. And it's inviting the entire group and not just singling out the one person that might be different um, about thinking differently and it invites different opinions and different thoughts in a proactive way rather than really requiring you know the the one person to to speak up and have um you know the courage to say their opinion right gotcha. and no, you know i, I think yeah. yeah go ahead no i would say i really like that other i like both but that the first example is so easy to do it's just like you celebrate yeah. some more of the holidays versus just dwelling on um the typical ones i really like that as just being a simple easy so you don't have to do every single holiday out there but definitely no. where it makes sense but uh yeah likewise i, I you know I, I agree but uh sorry i interrupted you oh no i was just gonna end with um what can managers do and i would say also you know be a learner be curious you know, the, one of the um, frustrations I think you'll hear from lots of folks from underrepresented identities is saying, like, you know, we're the ones that have to educate everybody on this, right? We're the ones that have to 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 teach people. And, you know, I think that if you are curious and learner and a listener, um, that really helps because I think there's sometimes fear in getting it wrong. And I think we can, we need to say that you can't get it wrong if you are, if you're, if you are trying to learn and you can say, look, maybe I made a mistake here. How can I be better? Um, and no one is ever going to fault you by saying, Hey, taking ownership, like, Hey, maybe I got that wrong, but how do I do better? Like what, what resources can I read? What can, what can I do? Where do I need to step back and let others step in? You know, I think being proactive in that as a manager rather than sitting back is um, would be great. Yeah, nice. One one of the examples I came up with thinking about this was the TV show Friends. Did you, did you watch that? Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 So there's there's the one episode. I figure this is a good you know all white people, but lots of anyway should be able to, to to capture this. But there's there's the part where where Rachel is going to work and she, her her boss smokes and she's trying to not smoke and yeah. they they go out on their smoke break and they make all these decisions for and she's excluded from these decisions because she doesn't doesn't smoke and she doesn't okay. want the temptation of going out and smoking. So she's trying to be be different, but also trying to trying to fit in. And I, I sort of feel like that encapsulates in a different way, sort of potentially the, the, the struggle, but also one yeah. where, you know, when you come back to it, like they, <laughs> the boss is obviously should value her opinion. Why not? She's there. You might as well get someone yeah. else's, but it was just sort of, Hey, this is convenient. I'll do this. And, and we're, we're alike. So, you know, let's make the decision. Whereas, you know, you're sort of missing out on what is this other person's perspective potentially that, that yeah. is, is, you know, just as about, you only have two people adding, might as well add a third and, and try to get, yeah. get a better decision out of there. But anyways, that one popped into my head. 
Oh, that's a great example. I don't remember that episode, but no, I mean, that's a perfect example. And, you know, for uh, pivot to working moms or working parents, um, you know, oftentimes the social gatherings are happy hour uh, where, you know, as a working parent before, back in the day when we were in person, uh, you know, we had to get home and yeah. pick up kids from childcare. And so you really missed out on those opportunities of um, where business was done. Uh, and and uh, so being just aware that you're missing a segment of your workforce because of just when you're timing that social interaction. I'm glad you started there because that's where I was going to head next was just on the family component of it. The craziest, I, I think, I hadn't really realized this. And and part of it is Canada is a bit different as far as we have our you know maternity benefits. But you were breastfeeding in the parking garage yes. uh, in secret, secretly. Yes. Yeah. Yes, I was. My my first daughter, uh, she refused to take the bottle. And so in um, in the United States, we we have protected leave for three months. It's not paid leave. We still don't have paid leave. So while my job is protected, um, I don't necessarily, depending on the corporation's um, policies, it may be unpaid leave. So after three months, I had to get back to work and she would not take the bottle. So I had to nurse her. But the particular corporation I was working for at the time was a very traditional um, company. There were no women in leadership. There were no uh, employee resource groups, nor you know, no women I could ask for how do we navigate this. There was no nursing room. You know, there was there was really no, you know, no guide on how do I do this. Um, and, you know, I was fortunate that my husband actually stayed at home um, for the first year and he would bring her to me every you know few hours uh, in the workplace. And we'd go in the garage and I would I would nurse her in between meetings um, because there was really no other place to do it. And I didn't want to lose my job. I didn't want to also be seen as somebody who couldn't hack it. And, um, so it was, it was a challenge. And, 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 you know, because I was at, um, I was in the legal role in corporate secretary, we would often have meetings that were, you know, 30, 40 minutes away. He would, you know, he literally would follow me with the baby. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, I, you know, got her and it took us about, I would say four to six weeks to get her on the bottle. She just was, a little stubborn. <laughs> does that, does that, looking back, does that seem ridiculous to you? To you now? Yeah. In Canada, it is, but I don't know if that's just because you, you must have done it because that wasn't that crazy. I, I, and that, and that, yeah. you know, lots of women were going back to work after very, and still do go back to work after a very short, you know, matter of weeks, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, I look back at it and crazy. I mean, you know, there was also no, um, there was no flexibility in the workplace at that time. There was yeah. no, Part-time where, you know, it would have been great if I could, you know, transition back part-time for a while, or if I could work from home, you know, for a little bit until we were able to get through this. Um, and then, it, you know, it didn't, you know, three years later when I had my second daughter, I had, had then a new manager. And the first week back, the, uh, you know, the manager was, was asking me to go on a business trip to Brazil. <laughs> You know, and it was like, well, my, ba you know, I have a baby at home. I, it, it, so it just, it made for very, ch very challenging to be um, a working mom. And 
I still really wanted to climb the ladder. I yeah. had aspirations of being a leader. I wanted to be a general counsel. Um, so I did not want to step back in that moment. Uh, so, you know, I just did what I needed to do to, to make it. Yeah, no, I, it, it kind of reminds me for my, myself about, I mean, I, I left mine, I'm in the finance industry in, in Toronto and, and sort of left that job for a, a time period because I had, you know, young kids and talking to a lot of the senior people that had much older kids, I'd ask them just, what did you do with your kids or did you ever see them during the week? And pretty much the resounding answer I got was no, like I, I, I really don't see my kids. They go to bed at seven. I'm home at eight yeah. or nine. And yeah. I would never actually see it. It was sort of almost one of those where that's crazy to think about. <laughs> I would see my kids yeah. during the week unless it was a special occasion or something. And on over mm-hmm. time, I just sort of felt like, well, I mean, that's not really what I, I wanted. And so mm-hmm. I, I sort of, it made me and pushed me sort of out of the industry in many ways. What's interesting mm-hmm. now though, is actually is COVID has in a lot of ways changed that. And I think pushed us in a, in a certain direction yeah. where all of a sudden it's, and I actually find the the change incredible just not only in that, but in just people's willingness to talk about their family and that it's okay mm-hmm. to have a family. I don't know. Have you found that as well, yeah. at, at the impact of that? Oh, yes. I mean, you know, one of the things even before COVID that I really appreciated was men showing up as parents. Yeah, um, because right. when men came into the workplace talking about their kids and, you know, leaving early to go watch the game. And, you know, uh, in my last job at Looker, we had a a, a member of the C-suite start the, his job and and he had negotiated before he came in and, and took immediately took paternity leave for three months, one week on the job. And that's such a huge role model because it gives women permission to be working mothers um, because it's working parents. It's not a man or a woman thing. It's a working parent thing. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think, and I think, you know, having everybody at home during COVID and realizing, you know, what it's like to try to balance, you know, raising kids and working, which for most women is something they did all the time already (laughs) was eye-opening, I think, for a lot of people. Uh, And we all learned that we can be very effective working from home. You know, we have the technology and the resources now to be effective. Um, so there's, you know, that I think excuse of, you know, not being able to, um, produce or work effectively, at, uh, in, in flexible schedules is, is off the table now because it's, it was proven to be, to be done. Yeah, no, totally. You, you mentioned yeah. at one point starting your own firm, which you had for, for a little bit. And I think you described mm-hmm. it as, uh, I think you described it as being, you felt lonely doing it, even though you were successful and working a lot. And, and in many ways, you found that experience again, because you were on your own kind of, kind of lonely. Uh, do you mind describing mm-hmm. that and sort of that experience and why it, it didn't work for you? Yeah. So I would say about um, maybe 15 years into my um, practice of, of law, I had felt like I was getting burnt out and frustrated. And so I decided I would start my own legal consulting business um, so that I didn't have to do the code switching. I didn't have to do the proving. I didn't have to do all these things that were really exhausting in the workplace. And so I started my own firm and was quite successful. I grew the business quickly. Um, and actually, one of the reasons it was so successful was there was a huge market of um, 
people that wanted flexibility. Uh, and so my business model was um, really helping in-house legal departments with their overflow legal work uh, that they could do remotely. And so I had lots of working moms and, and working men who, working parents who wanted that flexibility. So from a business model perspective, it was quite successful. Um, but And so I ended up deciding I needed an office. Uh, because I, I'm too busy and loud at home. So I've, you know, leased a little small office in my small town. I brought my dog to work and I found myself in my office by myself eight hours a day, um, n- not seeing anybody and not interacting with anybody, you know, in person. And probably many of the feelings we all experienced during COVID, but I, I'd done it, you know, several years before. Um, but I realized that. One of the things I love about working is um, mentoring. I I am I love teaching. I love mentoring uh, young people. Uh, I love um, collaboration. I'm a team. You know, I uh, you know maybe it's because I did sports when growing up, but I I love being part of a team and building things together. Being in a room where we have hard problems that we need to solve and and brainstorm. So I miss being part of that environment um, and realized that I sort of secluded myself thinking that that would bring me joy and happiness, but it, in fact, it, it, it made, made me lonely. Yeah, no, I, I, I really am a big advocate for that of just go and try something. You're very yeah. well qualified to go back and the world of corporate law and get a job yeah. at a company. But if you feel like that's what you want to do and you get, you know, go out, go ahead and, and do it. And, and you're just not going to know until you actually yeah. go and take that leap. So anyways, yeah. I'm glad that you sort of share, share that and the way that you share it, because it's not like, you know, I think people just, when they're talking about their careers, have a sense of going through it and saying, Hey, everything was amazing. And I just did all these great things. And then I got here and, and whatever. And sure. I think, but I think as you build those up, a lot of those should be in our experiences. You, you realize that you like parts of them and don't like others. And you end up over time just learning more about yourself and continuing on and hopefully getting to a, a, the, the place that works for you <laughs> in the time. Well, and you actually, you raise a good point because it's not only 100% agree with you that you have to try new things and see if they work or don't work, but they also may or may not work depending on the season of your life and career. Yeah. Um, so the the anecdote I just shared with you was later in my career where I already, my children were already, you know, in, in middle school and high school. And um, I was quite seasoned in my career. But when I first had my kids, you know, when they were little, when babies, I also sort of off-ramped and, and did consulting work on my own. Um, and it worked perfectly. Uh, because I really only wanted to work part time, um, but I didn't want to leave the workforce altogether. Um, yeah. But I didn't want to work full time because it was I didn't want to not yeah you know, I didn't want to miss raising my kids. So for a period of three or four years, or maybe more, five years, um, I did consulting, but just on my own. I didn't I didn't hire anybody, and it and I was super happy. It worked really well, and I wasn't lonely because you know, I didn't do it full time. I did it for a part time. And, um, and I didn't have a lot of extra time because I was, you know, diapers and toddlers and all of that. So, yeah. Do you ever look back and think about what you were going after, what you were trying to achieve, what your goal was, whether you were, you know, where, where you were headed? 
Yeah, you know, when I started my career, I my goal probably after a couple of years was to be a general counsel. Um, I saw that as sort of the pinnacle of of being a corporate lawyer. Um, I knew I didn't want to be in a law firm. I really enjoyed being a business partner and being part of the business. So I knew I wanted to be in-house and, you know, the sort of top position in that role is being a general counsel. Um, So when I reached that uh, after, you know, 20 years or 15, 20 years, um, you know, I also went through a crisis, you know, sort of this crisis of now what, you know, what have I, am I done? Is this all I'm going to do? And, you know, and it took me, you know, what's my purpose? I went through that stage um, and I pivoted and I'm doing things right now that I never would have imagined um, I would have been doing when I started my career in law or as a young person. You know, I I was, I'm not, I wasn't exposed to any of this. Um, You know, like I said, my parents were immigrants to this country. Um, I did not know a lawyer. I didn't know anyone in venture capital. I didn't even know what that word meant. Um, so, uh, you know, now and being a board director, being working in venture capital, um, these are roles I never would have thought of myself in um, because I also never saw anyone that looked like me in those roles. Um, I spent 25 years advising venture capitalists, working with boards of directors. I've sat in that room for 25 years and never saw anyone that looked like me in that room. So I never imagined someone like me deserved to be in that room or could be in that room. Um, and so part of the reason I'm doing that now is because I, I want to love it. It's fun, but to, to really inspire others to, that they can also be in that role. Yeah. That was my last question was yeah. what's your goal now? Yeah, I mean, exactly that. I think <laughs> you can't be what you can't see. Um, and seeing, you know, seeing someone like me reach those positions and um, is important for our uh, younger generations. And um, so I hope to inspire with this book and my story um, to to reach that demographic. Well, thank you today, Trisha, for joining me on the podcast. And also probably more importantly, thanks for, for writing that book and, and connecting with, uh, I think what I hope is, is, is a lot of people on that, on the topic. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me and letting me share my story. I appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for listening. There are a lot of takeaways that I have. There's lots of things that I'm thinking about still sort of after doing that interview. And I, I, for you out there, I'm hoping that you're thinking about that inclusion question about how do we make sure and how do we just include people, whether you are in a senior management position or you are super junior and you're just trying to connect with someone. I think talking about culture, understanding people, treating them like real people and different people and embracing that I think is super important. And that's where I think feel both like Patricia and I are, are coming out in. So The key thing there is just to talk about it. Find someone that you can talk to it about. You don't have to out yourself today. You don't have to do anything crazy, but just talk about it and think about how it makes you feel. And also, when Trisha's book comes out, I think you'll really enjoy it. I typically end my podcast episodes by saying, don't worry, be happy. It's kind of the Bob Marley kind of thing. But I wanted to kind of change that. I was thinking of changing that. 
partly based on the inspiration from Patricia to standing out is good. We spend so much time trying to fit in all the time that maybe we should also think about how we're different and how that is good. So with that message, thank you for listening once again. Remember, it's good to stand out.